You might uh, like to keep uh, that passage open as we look at it a bit later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for the way that God is seen to be working through the lives of these people present. But we thank you most, Father, that you continue to work through the lives of your people today as well. Amen. Well, we uh, all have life's experiences, don't we? Some of them very big. We've heard a lot recently about weddings that take a long time. Sometimes it's we're looking forward to the birth of a son or a daughter. Sometimes we're looking forward to exams or going to university. Things that take a long time. And of course, it's not always easy. There are good times and there are not so good times. Well, if we're followers of Jesus, do we believe that God is at work through all these life's experiences? Well, as Richard said, we're nearly at the end of the story of Ruth. And we have got the benefit, of course, of hindsight. We can look back through the period of time covered by this book and we can see of Naomi suffering through life, through her woes and her her issues, but we can also see that God's plan is fulfilled through these people, Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. Now, we've got a short passage in front of us this morning. It's very intense. It includes a lot but it does bring towards us a close in this story. So as I was thinking about this, I think, well, we may have some visitors with us this morning or people who have not been with us in the last few weeks. So I thought that as we're getting towards the end, I ought to perhaps give a brief summary of what has happened through this short book of Ruth. So we find that there are two major themes found within Ruth we see that God is actually quite hidden within it, but he works through the lives of these three people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, to enable that his plan of salvation to progress. That's the first major theme that we find throughout this book. The second one is that of prayer, and we will see both of these again this morning. But a brief recap. Who's involved? Who are the characters? Well, there's this woman, Naomi, who's a Jewish woman. She was married, had two sons. Uh, They lived in the area of Bethlehem, but Bethlehem began to suffer through famine, so the husband decided that they ought to go to the land of Moab, where there was food available for them. However, whilst they were in Moab, The two sons marry Moabite women and then the the husband dies, as do the two sons. So Naomi is left a widower. Then we've got Ruth, the second character in this book. She's the wife of one of Naomi's sons who dies, so she becomes a widower and she's a Moabite, that is, not a person born into the Jewish household and people of God. And then we've got Boaz, who was an elderly single man, 
a relative of Naomi's, but a man of great character. A man of great character. A character that reflects the nature of God. So we saw a, a few weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, the nature of this man, he was a man of standing, he was a religious man, a man of wisdom, a man who follows God's law, a man of compassion, sensitivity, and generosity. And within this story, we have Ruth, who is loving Naomi and trying to help in the situation. So she goes into the fields of Boaz to collect grain after the harvest is done, what they called gleaning in those days. Boaz, as his character shows us, is welcoming, and he's also what they call in chapter 2 and 3 of Ruth, what is known as a kinsman redeemer. Now, a kinsman redeemer uh, in the Jewish system was a man who would buy the land back from a widowed woman who had been left with no male uh, offspring. Also within their system, if that had happened, if the widow had been left with no male offspring, the brother-in-law would marry her. And this is what Boaz declares he will do. He will act as redeemer kinsman if the nearer relative refuses to do this. And so he says that he will buy back the land of Naomi's dead husband and he will marry the widow Ruth. And so what's he doing in this? Well, he's offering both of them security He's making it possible their family name will be carried on through the birth of a child. And that's what we saw last time in uh, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Now note, this is a legal action within their culture, but it's not hidden away in some solicitor's office. No, it's right out there in the public eye because it happens at the city gates. There was Boaz and there was the kinsman and the other kinsman relative and there were other witnesses and city leaders as well. But it's also reasonable to suggest that because this man Boaz was a wealthy, honourable and well-known figure within this small city, there would have been other people present as well. Because the action of claiming redemption was a public action as well as the promise of of marriage. We see this in verse 10. And so, the drama of this story is carried out within the public domain. God is seen to work within the public arena. And surely, isn't this something that we should expect today? God doesn't just work within the church. No, he works within the public arena as well. The marriage, of course, was a legal and public action. The elders and crowd witness to this event. But they also give it a spiritual blessing as well. So they pray a blessing on it. 
And so we see here, through the self-sacrificing act of Boaz, Ruth has been brought into the family, including their relationship with God. So mirroring what Boaz believed God's action was towards his people. So those that redeemed show and share the redemption act that has gone on. It's an example that Boaz gives us that we can follow. We have been saved by Jesus' death as well. But we also see prayer within this action of the redemption and the marriage because the witnesses pray for God's blessing on the new family. And this is just one example of prayer that's found within this book of Ruth. To give you some examples here through earlier chapters, we read of Naomi's response to the news from Bethlehem that the famine has ended. Her response was to send her daughter-in-law back to her Moabite country, but she sent her back with a prayer, chapter 1, verse 8. The greeting that Boaz offers his workers and their response is a prayer in chapter 2. In chapter 2, also verse 20, at the end of the gleaning, there is prayer as well. And then when Ruth visits Boaz during that nighttime visit to the threshing floor, there's prayer again in chapter 3, verse 10. And now we see that all the crowd responds in prayer at the transaction by the gate by seeking God's blessing on Boaz and Ruth. And so all this prayer shows us something of the spirituality of the author of this book. Every aspect of life, from the good things, from misery to joy, from the extraordinary to the ordinary, and social intercourse, is all found within the faith that God is there, God cares, and points to the character of God. And the people respond in prayer. And so, as we look at this prayer of the people at the gate, it shows us that they believe that God is at work. And the nature of this God, a compassionate, redeeming God, a God who has the power to redeem all outcasts into fellowship with himself. And so, as we consider the good points, these big issues in our lives, as we consider our lives, the good, the poor, the hopeful and the disappointments. Do we have this faith and commit all to him in prayer? Now, of course, as we look at verses 11 to 17, we see that this is a joyful gathering of many people. Boaz was respected, wealthy, if somewhat old, who was at last getting married. And the elders declared that they have witnessed the promise of Boaz to marry Ruth and also the event itself. And so they make this blessing, this statement concerning Ruth and Boaz. Look what they say in verse 11b. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath 
and, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Peraz, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The elders recognize that Ruth is a Moabitess, a woman from outside of the covenant people of Israel. We see this because she is compared to Rachel and Leah. The Jewish people of the time uh, were willing to accept outsiders into their community if they became believers and worshippers of Yahweh as the one true God. Later, as we move towards Jesus' time, the Jews become much more exclusive as to who could belong to this covenant people of God. But here, we see that God is willing to accept and use a woman from outside of the community. One who had come from a society that had customs and practices that went against God's laws and practices. And so we see here, we can take from this, that God is prepared to use Ruth, the woman from Moab, and he can use unlikely people to extend his kingdom. And surely this is a principle that we should take on on board, shouldn't we? We should never close down the door on whom the Lord may use, but welcome all into the church. I think of the time when I went up to Manchester to the Message Trust uh, conference and there I saw a congregation of people tattooed beyond belief. Not looking at all like conservative churchgoers. But they were following and serving Jesus who had changed their lives radically and they were prepared to go out into their community and share that God cares and loves all people. That God just wants all people to believe in his son as their loving saviour. And so we see here that God accepts and the witnesses accept Ruth. But we also see that Ruth, of course, is no ordinary Moabite woman because she displays character that reflects the very nature of God. She's a righteous, faithful, kind, noble, obedient woman who accepts Yahweh as her God. And so, the elders at the gate compare her to Rachel and Leah. Now, the reference to Rachel and Leah is a blessing, To understand this, we need to understand the importance for that society of the birth of sons and the curse felt by women who were barren. We read of this in Genesis 29 with the story of Jacob and how many sons were born to Leah and Rachel, who incidentally had been barren for a while until God made it possible for her to conceive. And so, this, this, this blessing is on Ruth, but it's also centred upon Boaz, with reference to his behaviour in these two locations, but also with reference to the house of Piraz, an ancestor of the Judean Perizzite clan. 
Now, we may find this somewhat strange because uh, the family of Perez was not usually regarded as an outstanding example of fruitfulness or anything else. But the tribe of Judah apparently depended upon Perez, descendants more than on any others. And as the book of Ruth is set within the territory of this tribe, the comparison is apt. Moreover, we see from chapters 4, 18 to 21, that Perez was one of Boaz's ancestors, and thus the most suitable person to be mentioned here. Indeed, it seems that Perez was the ancestor of all the Bethlehemites in general. And so we come to the actual marriage itself in verse 13. Now, unlike marriages that we've had recently, there is no description at all of this marriage. No television cameras, no, no great scenes of rejoicing at all. It's just a statement. But the results of it are profound. The results of it are profound. There are four results from this marriage. The first one is that it restores different people. Let's have a look at this. It looks at, firstly, it enables God's plan of salvation to progress. Because we see that God works through this marriage for his will to be done with regards to his plan of salvation through the lineage of the family which comes from this marriage. We see from the birth of Obed, who, which comes from this marriage, that eventually King David is born from this lineage. And then eventually, further on, even further, Jesus Christ. So there's a direct link here between the marriage and the birth of Jesus Christ. So this marriage enables God's plan of salvation to progress. But the marriage also restores Naomi's life. It restores Naomi's life back to full life and security. If you look at verses 14 to 17, where the prayer of the women proclaim this, we see the changes in Naomi's life from chapter 1, where we read that she had lost her husband, her two sons, all had died, leaving her a widow without any grandchildren. We read in uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 that she says, the Lord's hand has gone against me. She is at rock bottom at this point. There is no hope for the future. And the situation is so bad that when she returns to Bethlehem, she changes her name to Mara, which means the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Very bitter. Whereas we see in chapter 4, verse 15, we read of the re her restoration and we read of the blessing given to her by the women. Naomi has a daughter-in-law who loves her more than the equivalents of seven sons. What a tremendous statement. These Israelite women speak of this foreigner, Ruth, as more value to her than seven sons. Now, we need to understand this number seven because it's used in the Bible as an ideal number. 
And the seven sons would constitute an ideal family. But now she has no sons. But she has a daughter-in-law who, though she is a foreigner, is better to her than seven sons. What a truly remarkable statement. Now, we need to bear in mind the context of this statement, that for these Israelites, the son of a couple was the pinnacle of a parent's desire at the time. And a numerous male progeny was the ambition of all married people. And so to speak of Ruth as being worth more to Naomi than seven sons is the supreme tribute. So Ruth, through her love and her care and her loyalty, was better than these sons. And on top of this, Ruth had given birth to a son who the women said was like her son. And we have the picture of a contented grandmother holding her offspring in her lap. The presence of a grandson which enabled there to be an inheritance and safety. So Naomi's life is restored through this marriage. But Ruth's life is also restored through this marriage. Ruth's life is restored and brings her into God's people. Remember, Ruth had married that first son of Naomi's. We think that they had been married for about 10 years before he died. But during this time, there'd been no children born at all and no sons either. Now, we don't know why that had happened, but it must have been a great sadness and a loss of respect for Ruth, because this was one of the major purposes of marriage within that culture. And now we read in verse 13 that Ruth conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, this wasn't just a freak happening or the logical result of the marriage because we see the work of God had been made possible because God had enabled her barrenness to be made whole. Look at verse 13. God, again, is given the credit for what had happened, a picture of fruitfulness and joy, a picture of God being very much in control of this personal story. So, through the marriage, Ruth is restored. And then fourthly, we see... Oops, gone the wrong way. God restores Boaz and his family as well. God restores Boaz as well. Boaz, of course, had been a single man with no wife and children, and now he has both through this marriage, and his family is going to be blessed as well. They're going to be blessed through the birth of the son named Obed, that name being servant or servant of the Lord. And in, prayer, and in the prayer of the women, we see that they proclaim that Naomi has been given another kinsman redeemer, Obad. Obad is identified as the kinsman redeemer, pointing to the future, which will in turn point towards King David and eventually Jesus, who is the descendant of this lineage. And so, as we come towards the end of this story in Ruth, we see that God restores people 
we see that divine and human actions work together for God's purpose. And we see that prayer is a vital uh, part of this work. The joyful outcome for all these three characters within the story is prayer. Naomi is surrounded with prayers of thankfulness to God, which brings the story to a full circle, proclaiming the provincial rule and care of God for his people. So that's a wonderful way to end. And we can praise God that his plan for Ruth led to Jesus coming to earth to die for us on the cross. So how then are we going to apply this to our situation today? Well, there's two ways, I think. Firstly, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are Christians, and if we're depending upon Jesus as our Redeemer who died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. Well, we follow the same God that these three did. And we can offer up prayers of thanksgiving that God has done has a great plan of salvation for all people through the death of Jesus. And we can offer up prayers, as Richard was suggesting earlier, those five people to pray for. We can pray for all those people We can pray for our situations that we're going through, whether they be good or bad. And we can have faith in a God who knows and loves us, even when it doesn't appear so. So, I'd like to finish off with some questions that I gave you, I think it was three weeks ago. Questions for us. Are we humble enough to accept Jesus as our Redeemer, Saviour? Are we humble enough? If we've not done that, if we've not taken that step of having faith in Jesus as our saviour, are we humble enough to accept him? Secondly, how like Jesus are we? And how might our actions be a part of God's plan for this generation? We've seen these three characters working through this story. Often at times I'm sure they weren't aware of what was actually going on. And that may well be the same for us. But are we a part of God's plan for this generation? And if we don't follow Jesus, and we haven't asked Jesus to take our sins away, are we at all thinking about it? Are we interested in this? If we are, then do take the opportunity to speak to Richard or myself at the end of the service. And we can point you towards passages in the scriptures and books to help you. Because we all have this great promise that comes from this book that God provides, that God provided a saviour for all people, including those on the outside. Amen.